Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. Last week, our long federational nightmare ended when we finally covered an episode of Enterprise on the show. Peter Byrne of Trek vs. Trek.com and I discussed the episode Twilight, which is an ambitious little episode of Star Trek Enterprise, one that involves time travel and alternate realities and phenomena and extremely long-lived dogs. I mean, let's face it, there's no way Porthos made it to SETI Alpha 5, right? I mean, it's 12 years later. Uh, Beagle's lifespan tops out at like 14, 15 years. It's the third year of their mission. Do the math. I know that humans tend to live a little longer in the 24th century. Picard's supposed to be like 59 when the Enterprise hits Farpoint. And Patrick Stewart was only 47 at the time, and also now currently still 47. So maybe they've got some kind of super science diet thing going on when it comes to pet life extension, but my money's on that dog bed being empty. That's not how I wanted to start the show, focusing on the death of a beloved pet. Uh, there's another word that I mentioned previously that is the focus of today's show, and it's not diet. That's not the word. Uh, although eliminating fast food probably put two decades on that crew's lives. I bet they still have Taco Bell in the 24th century, but it's it's made under the same protective principles as Synthahol. It's, it's fortified with all the necessary nutrients. It probably tastes like granola covered in salsa. Focus. Okay, science. Science is what we're all about this week. The sci in the sci-fi. Science makes Star Trek possible. It gets our characters across the galaxy, gets them in and out of danger, and it's what their ongoing mission is all about, along with uh, galactic diplomacy and keeping Q entertained. The science of Star Trek is fictional, but the creators of the show base much of their technobabble on real science, and new discoveries and breakthroughs in our own world are usually reflected in Trek with new plot lines, new problems, and of course, new technobabble. Physics is at the core of all space science fiction. We've got to get from here to there, and to do that, we need energy and propulsion. On the way there, we get sucked into a wormhole. We have to find a way out. And once we get there, we've got to analyze the problem and manufacture a scientific solution. It's all science and Trek, and if you don't like that, keep walking. They're always hiring over at Star Wars. After talking about time travel and paradoxes and anomalies last week, I wanted to know more about the real-life science behind warp drive and transporters and wormholes in Trek. So I called up tattooed gravity queen Dr. Erin McDonald. Dr. McDonald is an astrophysicist and sci-fi consultant, as well as a public speaker, and I heard that she was a warp drive expert, which is just what I was looking for, and she schooled me good on the science of Trek. We also talked about the importance of portraying women in STEM fields, laser interferometry, dark matter, and dark energy, and I got her to weigh in scientifically on some classic Trek episodes. Stay tuned after the interview to get your assigned reading and to find out where you can catch up with Dr. Aaron on the web, and with that, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is Dr. Aaron McDonald. Dr. McDonald is an aerospace engineer, a speaker, educator, and sci-fi consultant, and has a PhD in astrophysics. She's the host of the YouTube series, Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe. Dr. McDonald, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Uh, I always ask new guests on the show how they first became Star Trek fans. How did you first discover Star Trek? Um, so I actually came to Star Trek a little bit later in life. It wasn't really until college that I 
properly discovered Star Trek. I had friends who were into it when I was younger. Um, but then in college, there's a really big uh, overlap in that Venn diagram of physicists and Star Trek fans. And so <laughs> we would go to, uh, you know, have our, our little college parties surrounded by solo cups and <laughs> we would be watching Star Trek, uh, which was awesome. So yeah, that's how I first got exposed to it. And then it just kind of became an anchor for, you know, my friendships and things that were going on and just my whole whole world opened up. Yeah, I mean, you've written and spoken before on how uh, sci-fi, and specifically the women of sci-fi, you know, the female characters out there doing the science were inspirational to you when you were growing up. And it's something that many women in STEM fields have echoed. I think it's been called the Scully effect. Yeah, that's right. And actually, Dana Scully is is one of those direct lines for me that <laughs> yeah. even though I didn't come to Star Trek until later, um, I you know grew up in the heyday of the X-Files and watching a redheaded woman fight aliens with science was kind of the coolest thing in the world. And all I wanted to do was be Dana Scully. Yeah. I've heard that uh, Mattel announced uh, fairly recently that that uh, Barbie will have a uh, astrophysicist Barbie doll now. Which, Which is, is uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's funny because I've actually, and I don't know if this is just a killjoy thing, but I did read about a study that said that uh, themed dolls like that may actually um, limit girls or, or hurt their uh, sort of, um, not chances, but their uh, perception of uh, women in uh, STEM fields. Which I'm not really sure exactly, I guess I didn't read the study, I don't know exactly um, what they mean, but... You know, if you can see, if you if you're a young girl and you've just never even nobody's ever told you that you could be a scientist or a doctor, nobody was encouraging you to do that, and you saw Barbie and her pink Capris, you know, looking through a t telescope or something like that. Right. Uh, that's positive. <laughs> yeah, and I think I mean that's an interesting point, but I think when it comes to something as esoteric as astrophysics, then something like that can be good because I mean. When I talk about me being a product of the Scully effect, it is a direct product because we found out in like one offhand comment in one episode that she did her undergrad in astrophysics. And right. to the extent that I looked it up to try to figure out what that was because it just sounded cool. And so yeah. if you can expose kids to that job beyond, you know, sort of doctor or general scientist with lab coat and, you know, chemistry <laughs> equipment, um, right. then th there's nothing wrong with that, I, I personally think. I think her thesis was on uh, the, the twin paradox, I believe. Yes, it was indeed. And uh, I'm quite proud that I went on to get my PhD in uh, general relativity. So not special <laughs> yes. relativity, but it was close enough. Yes. The, uh, now you know, let's, we, we don't need to dig in too much into how much Scully influenced my life. Right. <laughs> now you need to be a doctor on the side and you can kind of have the opposite thing of her. Right, right. Yeah, except I find like uh thing like squishy things are are not my jam. Oh, okay. <laughs> I did rule out doctor when I was pretty young. So Only uh, dry medicine, please. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Scientists uh and uh, especially women scientists definitely uh discover STEM fields, but some uh are through uh popular characters, but some of them must get there uh without knowing about sci-fi. Do, do you know any uh, have any friends or colleagues who aren't sci-fi fans at all and just kind of turn up their nose at that sort of thing? <laughs> um, yeah, I do. And I think that really it comes down to having uh, what, what you're surrounded with when you're growing up. You know, I, yeah. I my dad was a scientist, but he was a, a weather a weather meteorologist. And uh, my mom was a librarian, so I had very left brain, right brain growing up. And, sure. um, you know, so I was encouraged to go into science in that respect, but sort of figuring out who I wanted to be was different from the sort of stuff that my dad was. And I think some of my friends who became scientists, not because 
of science fiction, you know, it was probably influenced by either their home life or peer home life. You know, just it may have been, you never know where kids get their inspiration from. And I think it's, it's important as science communicators, especially to not forget this, that it could be one presentation that was done at one like Girl Scout event, you know, that might have yeah. changed a kid's life. And they right. never were into sci-fi, but maybe that one presentation opened up the world to that as a possibility. So it's important to remember those things. You never know where inspiration is going to come from. Or it could even come from Barbie. It could even come from Barbie. <laughs> and you know what? If it does, that's great. Yeah, it is. Uh, you worked previously with the LIGO Scientific Collaboration, uh, which involves laser interferometry, which, I mean, I totally know what that means, but maybe for the listeners you know, who don't, uh, could you explain it? And if I don't say anything while you're explaining, like, like I'm dumbfounded and I have no idea what it is, it's because I'm just, I'm in character as one of those listeners. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, we'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so laser interferometry, some people may have come across this in sort of their science classes. It was be done back with Mickelson-Morley, uh, where they were building an interferometer to see if there was such thing as the ether, which was this mm -hmm. idea that our universe had to be in something. So it was like this ether was maybe what the... Um, the uh, planets were moving through. And right. that, you know, they d proved that there wasn't an ether with that experiment. But then subsequently, uh, we were trying to figure out how to detect these things called gravitational waves. And these were postulated by Einstein when he was coming up with his theory of general relativity, which for a lot of people, maybe that um, bowling ball on the trampoline image that you put a bowling ball on a trampoline, yes. it's going to sink down. You can flick a marble, it'll orbit around it, just like planets go around uh, stars or moons go around planets. And uh, one of the things that came out of that is if that trampoline gets perturbed in any way, say the bowling ball explodes or two bowling balls crash into each other, you're going to get ripples just like you would sort of in a pond. And uh, did all the math and you can see that it is a wave equation that propagates at the speed of light. So Einstein said, okay, so any changes to the trampoline, to the, you know, the mass shapes the trampoline, and then uh, we can get uh, information from that, then that dictates how the mass moves. Uh, if there are changes to that mass, then that propagates through space um, at the speed of light in the form of a wave. Mm -hmm. And so he said, yeah, that's a thing. But it's so small, no one will ever detect it. And scientists went, challenge accepted. <laughs> and, <Sure. laughs> and they went in to try to figure out how we could actually make those detections. So the laser interferometer is basically you have this uh, housing lab, basically a big optics lab, and you shoot a laser out, and then it gets split into two directions um, at a 90-degree angle. So it basically makes an L shape. Um, and we send that laser beam down about four kilometers in each direction. And both of the lasers come back and then recombine. And if a gravitational wave passes by, one arm gets shorter and one arm gets slightly longer. And sure. then when the laser beams come back and meet, there may be an interference pattern that those waves aren't going to meet in the same way that they split up. And uh, now gravitational waves we're talking about, even the most violent events in the universe are only changing those arms, which remember are, are four kilometers. That distance right. is only changing one one thousandth the size of an atom, which is wow. insanely small. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, those have subsequently been detected um, after I left the collaboration, but I'm not bitter. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, you helped. <laughs> I helped. I loosened the jarlet. That's my official right, statement. Right, <laughs> that's it, yeah. 
It's so funny too, or funny, I mean, it's fascinating the way that we reconceptualize some of our ideas and we think it's one thing and then we disprove it and we, and we go looking for something else. And the scientists thinking that there had to be some medium, they thought that the universe was filled with this you know, fluid or whatever, uh, that got dropped. But they just didn't, they were so close to maybe realizing that the universe was the medium, that there was space time. Right, exactly. That, uh, yeah, the whole four dimensional fabric that we live in is that medium. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great way yeah. of thinking about it. And Einstein's theories, of course, that's what we're talking about, of uh, special and general relativity are incredible because they're, they're somewhat counterintuitive to how we'd expect the universe to work. Like Michelson and Morley couldn't wrap their heads around it, but they're also conceptual to a guy like Einstein who's, you know, working in a patent office and he doesn't have laser interferometers or satellites, you know, with uh, gyroscopes in them to test the effects of his theories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so he's a, he's an incredible mind in that he could just have this weird idea and test it and his theories have been extremely successful. They've survived, you know, nearly every challenge for, you know, over 100 years. Absolutely. And it helped. Um, a lot of the stuff that he came up with was reconciling some of the issues that were coming up in physics as we were sort of at the dawn of the 1900s. We were mm -hmm. starting to get good enough technology that we were poking holes in, you know, laid out physics such as Newtonian gravity. And so Einstein, you know, his thought experiments, his Gedanken experiments led to a lot of solutions in science, um, you know, even down to the is a photon a wave or a particle is light right. a wave or a particle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Smart guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this might be a question without a very good answer uh, at the point that we are at in science right now. But assuming that we eventually develop a grand unified theory uh, that is you know, re reconciling quantum mechanics and gravity, do you think that we'll have to retire Einstein's equations as formational but obsolete, kind of like we have with Newton's? You know, that's an interesting idea. And I think we've tend to put these various theories through a lot of rigor. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't, however, the big thing that separates Einstein's uh, general relativity from Newtonian gravity is that we um, directly detected space-time um, and mm -hmm. space-time moving as opposed to just seeing the indirect effects. Now, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around because you drop something off the table, that's gravity. So you feel like you're seeing gravity, um, yeah. but you're seeing the effects of gravity. And right. so with this detection of gravitational waves, we were directly detecting the motion of space-time, um, space-time itself. And it moved exactly how we expected it to move. So sure, I mean, this is the thing with scientists is that you have to have an open mind and you have to be willing to accept possible, you know, changes or, or, um, you know, different approaches to long held fields if the evidence steers you in that direction. So we'll keep testing it. And if we see weird things, if we see weird effects, you know, we're still trying to figure out dark matter. We're still trying to figure out dark energy. As long as, as we keep pursuing those, we may start to realize that there would be other you know, explanations for some stuff that have been long held truths. However, yeah. we're not quite at that stage yet. It's like the first thing that your high school physics teacher tells you, like all this stuff you're going to learn isn't like, isn't true. Like you're going to learn <laughs> these equations. You're going to learn that this does this, but it's really much more complicated. This is just like the version that we're giving you right now. Yeah, exactly. And that's so hard. Like it's so hard. And I think that's the same with math, math and physics and a lot of science. It, when you're teaching it, especially at a fundamental level, you have to try to keep the excitement up and going because 
you know, there's so many points where you're like, yeah, it's like that, but not really. (laughs) And and you need another like three (laughs) years at least of math before we can get to the real answer. And so it's really hard. You just hope that people really want to find that answer and keep taking math classes. Yeah. It's kind of like playing video game golf and then going out and playing real golf. Right, right, exactly. Um, but the thing is that mastering golf then feels really good when you yeah, get I to actually <laughs> apply those equations, you know, and you yeah. actually get to dig down into that deep science, um, then it's really satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Well, you brought up Dark Matter, and I'm guessing that you didn't mean the uh, the uh, sci-fi show that was canceled, uh, sadly. Um, but you mean actually uh, a matter that uh, we don't know what it is. Like, we're pretty sure dark matter exists, and it's most of the matter in the universe. So, uh, what the yeah. hell? Where is it? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have, as we've been kind of observing our universe, we've seen these weird things that happen. But what we observe is what we call byronic, not not byronic, sorry, baryonic matter. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm a big fan of byronic heroes, so I make that mistake a lot. Um, but anyway, <laughs> baryonic matter, um, that's the stuff in the periodic table. That's hydrogen, helium. All of that is what we see and we measure. Um, but really, when you look at the universe and the amount that we've been studying it, we realize that baryonic matter is only 4% of what is out there. Um, oh. Now, about a quarter of what's out there is dark matter, and then almost three quarters is what we call dark energy. Um, and again, Einstein's smart guy. You have E equals MC squared. That's how we kind of compare the two, is that you can have matter and energy. You can compare uh, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Um, but what dark matter is, is it was discovered sort of, again, at the you know dawn of the 20th century, early 1900s, um, when we were starting to make really detailed calculations of star movements, And we were seeing that, you know, contrary to how our solar system works, where you have planets that are closer to the sun move orbit really fast. And then the further out you go, they orbit slowly. That has to do with the mass of the sun and the center of gravity. Um, But we were noticing that the stars on the outside of our galaxy are orbiting uh, much faster than the matter that we can see. So, you know, our, our galaxy is a spiral galaxy. It's like a flat plate similar to our solar system. But instead of planets orbiting one massive star, we have a whole lot of stars all going around um, orbiting the center uh, where we have a supermassive black hole, but there's just a lot of mass in there to begin with. Um, but when we add up how fast the stars on the outside of the, of the galaxy are going, um, they're going a lot faster than they should be for all the matter that we can count. And cool. so we realize there must be some other matter there that we can't detect. Um, And then as we started to do more and more observations, particularly with the Hubble telescope, um, we were able to see this other effect to an extreme extent um, called gravitational lensing. Now, gravitational lensing is this idea that light travels in a straight line through the universe, but space gets curved. The space-time gets curved with the presence of mass, that bowling ball and the trampoline. So again, if you flick a marble in a straight line over a trampoline that has a bowling ball on it, it's going to get curved around. And that will appear to have come from a different direction. So that's what we call gravitational lensing. And um, with Hubble, we've been able to see gravitational lensing from like distant galaxies around galaxy clusters that seem to have a lot more mass than we can measure. And so these are how we started to stack up all this measurements of what we call dark matter. So we know dark matter interacts gravitationally, but it does not interact electromagnetically. So electromagnetic is light. 
Um, that could be radio, x-rays, visual, gamma rays, any of those. Um, it doesn't seem to interact in that realm, but light gets curved around it. It disrupts space-time the same way that matter does. So it interacts sure. gravitationally. Um, now, the coolest analogy for this actually comes from uh, Star Trek Discovery, <laughs> where they had an episode oh in the first season where they were trying to detect cloaked Klingon ships. And one of the ways that they came up to detect that was to do measure all of the microgravitational lensing from background stars around where they thought the Klingon ship was. And okay. so if you want to talk about us trying to detect dark matter in astrophysics, it's really analogous to having cloaked Klingon or cloaked Romulan <laughs> ships, that they sure. don't interact electromagnetically and you have to find some other way to see their effect, which is right. awesome. <laughs> Well, okay, that rules out dark matter as being uh, spores. Then, I guess from the uh, from the mycelial network. Correct. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're not so, going to go there. That's squishy well, things. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. More squishy. Yeah. Uh, it's just so it's just so funny because I know that there is you know a scientific consensus and a lot of people have uh, looked at this problem from different areas, but it's still nuts. It's like where's all the mass? Um, there's invisible, weakly interacting stuff everywhere. Uh, you just can't see it, and it, it almost just seems like like fiction. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure there's got to be some. Some scientists who are out there, like on the fringe, who have ideas about it being something else. And I don't know, who knows? Maybe it, it oh, could be yeah. mycelial <laughs> spores or something <laughs> like that. It, it could be. But what we know about mycelial spores is that they wouldn't do very well in space. And for the amount of matter that's out there, remember, <laughs> this is we only see 4% and the dark matter takes up 25, 26%. That's a right. lot. To make up yeah. for it. Now, you mentioned the weakly interacting particles. Those would be things like neutrinos. And those were certainly a big candidate for dark matter. Um, and so we built a lot of really good neutrino detectors. But even then, we're detecting them. And they make up a good fraction, but still not enough to make up for know. how much must be out there. Well, uh, of course, one of the most important scientific in innovations in Star Trek is the warp drive. Uh, you wouldn't have a show without it. And... It, as it, I know the concept is fictional, uh, <laughs> at least I'm pretty sure it's fictional, um, but would something like that be possible in our universe? Would faster than light travel be possible? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me about that. That's totally my jam. <laughs> All right, so, bring it on. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I was introduced once as a warp drive expert, and um, I was <laughs> like, well, that's my career made. That's all I ever wanted. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's this idea. So when we talk about space time, we talk about that trampoline. Uh, basically, as you reduce your mass, you're reducing how much you're dipping that space time, um, how much you're distorting it. And when you finally get to zero mass, like light, like photons, you just coast along the surface at the speed of light in a straight line. Um, and so that's why we're limited to uh, the speed of light being our uh, fastest that we can go. Now, any yeah. any mass you introduce, like a spaceship or anything, you're going to start distorting and you're not going to be able to reach the speed of light, let alone past that. But space is very big. Stuff is very far apart. And if we want stories, we've got to be able to travel faster than light. So shows come up with all sorts of different ways to approach it. Um, but like you said, warp drive, especially in Star Trek, is kind of the most well-known. And what that goes off of is this principle that the rule says nothing on the surface of space-time go faster than the speed of light, but nothing says 
time itself can't go faster than the speed of light. And so the premise is that you wrap a warp bubble around your ship and that bubble propels you faster than the speed of light. And if you want to go faster, then you build another warp bubble around that and you start to exponentially increase your speed, like warp factor two or three. Um, sure. And then eventually you get to the point where you wrap all of space and time around your ship and you have warp factor 10, which results in terrible episodes that we don't talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> But that's basically Squishy. the premise of that. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the premise is sound, and people have tried to calculate mathematically how much um, that would actually take to warp space-time like that. Again, we go back to that energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Mass, bowling balls, weight, uh, warp space-time. But if you don't have that, then you could use a, an equivalent amount of energy to warp space-time into what you need. And uh, when they first did that calculation for how much energy it would take to warp space-time to build a warp bubble around a spaceship, uh, the answer was all of it. All the energy. Huh. Forever all now. the energy everywhere. <laughs> all the energy. Not, not ideal. Um, the, and it just has to do with the shape of it, how big they think it needs to be, any of that. And they have actually kind of gone back to the calculations and they've worked it down. I think the last I saw, I think the last I saw was about the energy equivalent of a semi-truck. Um, but okay. sounds promising. Keep in mind that the energy uh, released in the hydrogen bomb was the energy stored in one teaspoon of matter. So right. there's a lot of energy in very small right. amounts of mass. Um, so kind of scary. And I'm not about to strap myself to it anytime soon. But <laughs> not totally impossible. Just very, very, very. Uh, you have to learn a lot more about engineering. <laughs> to get to yeah. that point. Just as a, as a layperson, something that always seemed like bad news to me for the prospect of us developing a, a warp travel or going faster than light is that we don't really see it, or at least we don't know if we're seeing it in the universe. Like, as a human, you know, we can we see fire or lightning in our environment. We learn to understand it and create it ourselves, or we observe planetary motion and we develop equations that help us put things into orbit. But we don't really see things going faster than light. So... I mean, the universe would be totally different if we did. <laughs> it would be a universe yeah. that we'd understand. But it just doesn't seem like that's how our universe works. That's really interesting that you bring that up. You know, um, there are theoretical particles called tachyons, which we mm. hear a lot in Star Trek. On Star and, Trek, yeah. Um, yeah, but they are actual theor theoretical, bold, underlined, italicized uh, particles <laughs> um, that always go faster than the speed of light. So instead of dipping space-time down, they actually invert it and coast along like, a, like they're surfing. Uh, the problem with those is that uh, they can theoretically exist, but like you said, in terms of understanding our world, we have no way to detect those because it basically breaks causality, yeah. right? If I do something to cause something to happen, we understand that. That's the fundamental practice of all scientific experiments is right. that you poke something and you see what happens. Right. Um, but trying to detect tachyons is the opposite of that. You would have to find some way to detect them and going faster than the speed of light means that they break causality. And uh, we don't know how to test for that yet. Now, what is exciting though, is this detection of gravitational waves because that's the first time that we've seen at least the motion of space-time. So even though we haven't seen particles that go faster than the speed of light, we can detect space-time itself which in the progress of scientific exploration, you know, you theorize in some instances, you theorize about something 
you can see the indirect effects of it. And then you see the direct effects, you can touch it, and then you start to play with it. <laughs> and so we're at that <laughs> stage where we've seen it, we can detect it, and now we can try to figure out how to play with it. And so that might get us a little bit closer to warp drive uh, sure. than trying to find um, tachyons or particles that are moving faster than the speed of light. Because again, we just don't know how we would detect them just yet. Yeah. If you're using warp drive, then you're arriving somewhere faster than really the universe thinks you should be able to get there. So does that violate causality? Correct. And if you start going down this rabbit hole, you will end up crying <laughs> in the shower for a while. <laughs> um, but basically, I mean, different shows have dealt with this in different ways because you're right. Like um, you try to predict where it's going to be. And, and if you go faster than the speed of light, then you will arrive somewhere faster than any knock-on effects would have would have happened to get right. to arrive where you were going. Um, now, one show that actually does a good job with this is Battlestar Galactica. When they talk about their faster-than-light travel, they use jump drives, which is this idea that you bend, pick where you want to go, you bend that point in space-time to you, and then you jump and you unbend it, which requires a huge amount of energy. Um, but they talk about something called the red line. And if you go beyond the red line, that's danger, Will Robinson, because um, you won't be able to predict where objects are going to be when you get there. And so, you know, you can look at your local region of space and see how things are moving and go, OK, well, when we get there, then that's going to be there. That star is going to be there. That planet's going to be there. And then the further you're going to go that, you know, we have non uh, um, we Oh, what's the word? Basically chaos theory that you can only predict it so much, right? There may be small effects that sure. you can't say for sure exactly where something is. Um, okay. Nonlinear effects, that's what I was trying to say. And so you could theorize basically that when they say the red line, it, you know, in general space travel, we, you know, limit ourselves to like a 95% certainty. So that might be where they establish the red line where nonlinear okay. effects take over and you can't say for sure where things are going to be when you jump there. So you're advised not to do it. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Then you get into things like time travel and twin paradox and what happens to people back home and, yeah, it, right. and then just have a lot of <laughs> sci-fi stories. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I've always, I've heard, I'd never do that before. I've heard him say, uh, you know, would you pass the red line on uh, Battlestar before, <laughs> but uh, now I know what that means. Something else that occurs to me from time to time is and kind of going off of that everything in the show should be way slower. <laughs> like the ships, the phenomenon, the explosions, the time scales. It wouldn't make for a very exciting show, but the distances we're talking about would make every journey take forever, even going some multiple of light speed. And the Enterprise will say, study a nebula, like a stellar nursery, to see stars being born. But it's not like they just pop out. I hope Captain Picard is willing to wait for thousands of years. Right. Well, didn't there, there was one episode, I think in season three of Next Gen, where they were waiting for a supernova, I think. And they yeah. just like camp there for a week. I mean, the right. fact that they have it down to a week, which is like a phenomenon that is usually estimated I to think, within 100,000 years. But. Yeah, I, I I, think that was, uh, I know in the Naked Now, there was a, a star explosion and a stellar fragment is like coming towards them. They have to get out of the way. Oh, yeah, and, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they did an okay job in Generations. There's... um you know, the star blows up and it doesn't immediately destroy the ship or the station. There's like a sort of the wa a wave, which I presume is traveling, you know, at some fraction of light speed that they have to kind of clean things up and then fly away before that wave reaches, you know, the orbit of the, uh, of the observatory. Yeah, absolutely. And that's cool. Actually, we've seen, um, with, uh, 
gravitational wave detections now we've seen that multi-messenger astronomy just not to go down a total rabbit hole with that but um it just reminded me we made a concurrent detection of gravitational waves with a gamma ray burst and so we were able to prove that a short gamma ray burst is caused by a neutron star collision we don't know if it's a neutron star in a black hole or a or two neutron stars. Basically mm. a neutron star is what's left over after a star explodes. And sure. then, but when this gamma ray burst happened, we detected it in gravitational waves. And then immediately, like fraction, fraction of a second later, uh, in gamma rays. And then as we observed it over time, we saw it in all these different wavelengths, which was taking all that matter, like and all the knock-on effects of it time to reach us. And so that's kind of similar to what they were talking about, like how these stellar fragments and things take time to propagate through space depending sure. on what energy is is going on. And I just think that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. a little geek moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool when they get it right, you know? It uh, really is. <laughs> I find it interesting, and you might have perspective on this as a former uh, researching scientist and an engineer. Zephyrin Cochran, as we all know, is the guy that develops uh, the warp ship, the Phoenix, uh, along with Lily Sloan, of course. But Apparently, he also yes. developed the science as well and the theory of warp travel, too. Like, <laughs> the unit of strength for a warp field is called a Cochrane. So he either named it after himself, which I can see, or he was just flying by the seat of his pants on theories. Like, he seems like a <laughs> multi-disciplined uh, guy here. Um, and then later, scientists named the value uh, Cochrane after him, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure about the future history of the development of warp theory. Well, yeah, and you're absolutely right. And he's basically a jack of all trades, which, I mean, you could kind of talk that up to it being World War III, and maybe scientists have to get resourceful and start learning some sure. engineering. Yeah. <laughs> I really I really kicked myself, uh, my future self, because I used to joke around when I was doing this warp drive theory stuff, um, you know, that it was like, well, I've done the math. Now the engineers can figure it out. And <laughs> now I find myself working as an aerospace engineer. So, oops, <laughs> now I, I see both sides of that. Um, but right. but it is rare. And, uh, you know, like, I mean, I could kind of do it, but yeah, I'd like to think that it's a collaborative effort. <laughs> the implication is certainly that he developed the theory and the engineering for it. And but, he's a pilot. Uh, yeah. 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 All while being <laughs> roaring III. drunk. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. World War Three makes uh, interesting individuals. <laughs> <laughs> he loves Roy Orbison, too. Um Federation starships derive their energy from a uh, matter-antimatter reaction, but Romulan ships have a different power source. They rely on an artificially created singularity, which doesn't sound very safe. And <laughs> it reminds me of uh, a term that I heard about a phenomenon called a Kugelblitz. I've heard it before. This idea of using a singularity to propel yourself is seen in science fiction. It's basically like a carrot and stick analogy that if you hang out a black hole like in front of your ship, then your ship will always be falling into it. And if you can somehow keep it going, then you can like be pulled toward it at extreme levels. Now, I don't know if you can go fast and light with that, but then the Kugelblitz, that's like this idea that um, you have stuff that's like, self-contained and so that may be that idea that this the um the singularity that's tugging the ship is self-contained within the ship and then sure. it pulls it along but there's a whole lot of physics that's being broken there <laughs> yeah yeah i'm uh i'm not sure how 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 good that is to pursue for us to uh, achieve faster than light travel well i think the distinction was that it, it was a it's a black hole that's um that's um, uh, the uh, mass and energy used to create it was is like radiant energy rather than matter. So it isn't like 
the Romulans are stacking a bunch oh, of gotcha. you know asteroids together to make a, a black hole. It's um it's just a concentration of energy. But uh, yeah, t- extremely extremely unsafe, extremely hard to work with. Probably right. And so that's that same idea that you can warp space time using an equivalent amount of energy, like you said, instead of mass. But then you have to make a warping of of space time that is so steep that light can't escape. At that point, it's a black hole, yeah. uh, which is a lot of energy in order to make that. Um, But yeah, I mean, cool principle. And I think as far as like science fiction is concerned and the consulting, you know, I do in the entertainment industry, like that sort of stuff, as long as you just massage the words right and get the principle sound, like you can kind of get away with that just because (laughs) we can't get, we can't do it in a physics lab here. Doesn't mean that you can't like stretch those principles right to the edge of where, where we can take them. So it's, it's cool to think about. Yeah, just do a find and replace on unobtainium though. That's that's a that's you put oh. that in as a placeholder and then just give it some cool name after that. Don't just actually yeah. call it unobtainium. Someone definitely James forgot Cameron. to do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I love to see is it just reminds me of like scientists when we write in source code and name something really dumb and then like put a comment in there that says like change this later and then that right. never gets changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I had a few Trek episodes I wanted to get your expert opinion on, if I could. Please. Okay, the doctor is in. Uh, There is A Force of Nature. It's a TNG episode where an alien race reveals that warp travel is damaging the fabric of space-time, at least in their particular region of space. And it's an episode with a heavy environmental message, but could space-time really be damaged, as the episode proposes, by uh, faster-than-light travel? I really love that idea. You know, the... um... The, the environmental message itself is is sound and interesting, but then when you start thinking about what faster-than-light travel would actually do to the fabric of space-time itself, I mean, it really has to do with how um, much space-time can withstand, like how much damage it can take. Sure. And the tricky thing is, is that space-time is rigid. Like, it is – this is why – it's hard for us to conceptualize because we see the effects of gravity so clearly. Um, but the reason gravitational waves are so, so tiny is because if you're thinking about that trampoline, trying to tug on it and pull it apart, is it's you can just imagine it being incredibly, incredibly rigid. And so this idea that as you warp it and as you continually um, travel through it and distort it in ways that you know, are, are sort of transient that you, you travel through and then you let it go back to how it was. And you travel through again, that you would eventually start to weaken that rigidity would kind of be that theory, right? That you're not necessarily tearing it like fabric. Um, but you're more, uh, making it less springy or yeah, that you're, you're making it less rigid. And so it's starting to loosen up. It's like, you know, clothes that you've worn over and over and over again, you might have a shirt that's not torn apart, but it's not the same shape it was when you first (laughs) bought it. And that would be where that idea is coming from. So like scientifically, I love that idea. And I I think that's uh, an area of general relativity that we haven't really explored yet. Shirt I'm wearing has a hole in it, so now I'm, now I'm worried about space. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. <laughs> there's another TNG episode called New Ground. Uh, this is the episode where a Federation scientist has devised a way to create a standalone warp wave. They call it a soliton wave in the episode that can propel a ship across space without the need for an internal warp drive. Does that, I mean, all this is implausible uh, or all this is fictional, but does that seem like something plausible? 
Yeah, and actually they used a great word for that. So a soliton wave is a thing, and we do study it in fluid dynamics, but it's basically a wave that um, sustains its own shape as it travels through. Um, so it's a little bit hard to picture, but um, you can see these sometimes in the ocean, you know, these, these waves that propagate and they just keep their shape as they're traveling through the ocean before they interact with something else. Uh, and, and cause them to distort further. Uh, we see these in, in all aspects of physics. And so soliton basically means solitary wave. It's just this wave that travels and it keeps the same shape as it goes through the universe. So right. this idea that you could possibly, and if I was going to sci-fi this, I would use uh, tachyons because tachyons you can picture being that sort of shape where you can create a group of tachyons would essentially make a wave, what looks like, and when I say wave, you know, picturing like waves in the ocean, they would make a wave that's not about to crash, but that is just propagating through the, the ocean. Um, that would kind of be that principle. And this idea that you could just coast on it uh, forever is fascinating and totally accurate. Uh, we just don't know how we could do that actually in space time. Um, but the words that they use for that are, are perfect, spot on. It would eliminate the need for ships, which I think is like yeah. the reason that you know we're glad that it doesn't work. But it would be you could just have because you, if you had a planet, you could have all the dilithium you wanted on the planet, and then you could just gin up a warp wave and just send somebody off, you know, like, like yeah. a subway or a train or something like that. But it would be a very different uh, sort of show if uh, they got rid of the Enterprise and <laughs> people just right. got on these like a Futurama tube and just got shot somewhere else. <laughs> Exactly. And I think, um, you know, you can you can then go into the economics of the Star Trek future where it's like maybe dilithium is just a heck of a lot cheaper and we haven't figured out how to harness tachyons yet. And so we yeah. can't make those yeah. <laughs> soliton waves. Um, yeah. Building a warp drive with dilithium is cheaper. So we'll do that. Yeah, right. Well, I don't know if they were trying to go that far with the episode. It is right. the one where Alexander burns down the zoo. So that was the <laughs> right. story there. Uh, what about DS9? The, the, the whole premise of the show is that they're stationed near a stable wormhole. And in the Trek universe, wormholes and, and space-bending phenomena are often dangerous and unstable. Um, if we observe or encounter wormholes in our own galaxy, should we expect them to be dangerous? Sort of, yes. So wormholes are... Uh, possible theoretically um, sure. geometrically as you look at space-time basically what it is is it's just a shortcut so uh, space-time itself can be however shape it is um, and it may be kind of distorted and warped in, in places um, based on mass based on just the overall shape of our universe um, and a wormhole in theory would kind of be a shortcut through different places. I like to think of like, if you have a long flat thing of toilet paper, like, and you lay it down and you have these folds over itself, uh, just punching through as opposed to traveling all the way on the surface, that's basically a wormhole. But the problem is, is that geometrically a wormhole basically looks like a black hole. And right. when you try to enter a black hole, uh, this thing happens called spaghettification, where your your feet, the gravity at your feet is much greater than the gravity. <laughs> not of your as head delicious as it sounds. Yeah, <laughs> you turn into spaghetti, uh, which is not ideal for trying to travel through it. Um, now, wormholes crop up in science fiction all the time as either artificial or naturally occurring, and the one in Deep Space Nine is is naturally occurring, and. Um, 
basically it's this idea that as it opens and as it closes, it's unstable and there's like emission of energy when it opens up. Um, and that that emission of energy would kind of be the dangerous thing around it. Now, right. because we haven't exactly observed black holes, we don't know if that would be the case. Um, but, you know, where they're going with that makes sense for sure. The movie Interstellar has a wormhole, isn't that right? Yes, it does. Yes. That's how uh, they uh, originally get to the system where they're looking for the planets. Right. And um, and again, I believe that one was was that naturally occurring as well. I think, oh boy! Now you have to get into the plot of Interstellar. <laughs> I know that's like I've blocked some of it from my brain. <laughs> not, I not think that matter, yeah. <laughs> I, if I remember correctly, and spoilers, I guess for Interstellar, but the aliens uh, that we don't ever see but are implied are future humanity, and so they are trying to save themselves in the past like, so that they'll yeah. be okay in the future, and so they in the orbit of Saturn or something like that, generate this wormhole that allows them to go to the uh, gargantua right. system. I guess Which, I knew more a than way, I thought I did. <laughs> yeah, you remember more than I did. Good job. Um, but in a way, I think it's interesting because Interstellar did what uh, another Star Trek episode did, and that was treat wormholes as um, shortcuts in space and time. Um, one of my favorite, I'm sorry, you're asking the questions, but <laughs> uh, to go, throw in another it. episode in there um, was Eye of the Needle, which was a first season Voyager episode where they find a little oh, wormhole yeah. from the Delta Quadrant to the Alpha Quadrant. And spoilers right. for that episode, um, they realize that the Romulan on the other side is in a, is earlier in time. So it's not just a shortcut in distance, but uh, in time as well. And so it's actually a really good episode, especially for being like a like number 10 in the first season or something. There's a DS9 episode, and I can't remember the title. I'm sure it's something to do with messages and bottles where they detect um, somebody's somebody's stranded. There was a ship crash or something, and they're having a conversation with this person. But because of like relativistic effects, it turns out that she's been dead the whole time by the time they finally reach her to save her. That's a brutal episode. Yeah, that's a rough one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of time travel, I mean, it comes up a lot in Trek, especially in Voyager and Enterprise, and time travel seems to get depicted one of two ways in science fiction. There's either the back to the future way where you know you can go back and change things and you'll disappear from the photograph. When you get back to the future, you have a nicer truck. But there's the uh, more deterministic version, too, where you can go back and try to change things, but you're, you're either going to fail or you'll just cause the future that you came back from preserving causality. And I believe that's called the Noikov self-consistency principle, but I'm not sure about that. Do you have a preferred version of time travel in sci-fi? Or, uh, alternate question, if we do somehow learn to travel in time or see time travel effects, what will it more resemble, uh, real, quote-unquote, real time travel? Interesting. Um, well, I love the fact that, like, the... Uh temporal police department tells Cisco they really hate the deterministic <laughs> excuse for time <laughs> right. travel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was going to We're not anyway. allowed yeah. to give that as a reason. I was supposed to do it. That's what happened anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, in terms of a storytelling technique, I do like that version because I think it like brings stories full circle, you know, that uh-huh. you, it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't time traveled anyway. Um, and the way the Trek tends to handle it, you're right. Like it's not totally, uh, canon one way or the other, how time travel is handled. Um, but the cool thing that they always do is that, so time travel breaks causality, right? Because you are either cause and effect, you're outside of that light cone, the limitation of the speed of light. 
and uh, and what lives outside of light cones? Tachyons. And um, <laughs> and uh, in the finale of Voyager, when uh, I, spoilers, I guess, <laughs> when Admiral Jane <laughs> just shows spoiling up, everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a surge of tachyons through this wormhole, and so they they're realizing that like there's a time travel associated with that is because there's this surge of tachyons, which is indicating um, time travel. So that's kind of a cool, that's a neat explanation. Um, and then there's all sorts, I mean, we do see, and there's what, the Timeless episode, there's the um, one where Jake Sisko like, lives out his life um, as an old man with you yes, know another sort of, yeah, the visitor, and uh, another one I've blocked because it's just emotionally destructive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so... The way Trek handles time travel in all aspects, I think, is great. You know, the introduction of Daniels and Enterprise. Um, and, yeah, like I said, I think deterministically that is fun story-wise. But physics-wise, too, I think if we were ever get to get to the point of time travel, uh, that's how it will be. Because you would have to go back to specific points. If you think about special relativity and trying to map out cause and effect... Um, you go back to specific points in space and time and we don't have control over time. Time is, uh, it's the fourth dimension of our universe, but it's constantly progressing in a positive direction. <laughs> positive being a technical word, right, <laughs> not, right. not necessarily. Yeah. Uh, your own opinion. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's constantly, um, processing. And so, um, if you time travel, then you have to pick a spot in space and time, which then those cause and effects would propagate through space and time. And so uh, you kind of have to, in my opinion, have to have that deterministic approach to it. Now, the other one that kind of gets you out of that is this idea of quantum multiverse theory, that when you time travel, you start a new universe. Sure. Um, and that was the, the Kelvin timeline, basically used that. And yeah. you know, going through the black hole, spawned a new universe and it's just a totally different timeline and so that's another way to get around it too and not insane actually uh there's no way we could test for it but this idea that as soon as someone time travels they may go to a different point in space and time but now there's a multiple universe it's you're in a different universe at that stage um sure. then you get into a conservation of energy and you cry a little and, <laughs> and walk away <laughs> <laughs> so somewhere out there adult molly is still on that planet. Oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did yeah. they, but they did that. You just reminded me too of like the duplicate Voyagers, right? Like yeah. you have to remember the Harry Kim that finished Voyager was not the Harry Kim that started. Right. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much the same, but yeah. Or the DS9 episode where they, they meet their descendants in that colony that formed after the ship crashed. And then oh, they yeah. basically, uh, save the ship, but that eliminates them basically from existence, killing yeah, them. There are a lot of little tragic, dark multiverses out there, aren't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. DS9 always pulls out time travel when they really want to devastate you. Uh, like where <laughs> Kira goes back in time and finds out that like Goldacott's like her stepdad. Oh my gosh, right? Yeah, yeah, seriously. But then, like, I feel like they made up for that with Trials and Tribulations. They were like, we got to yeah. give them a happy <laughs> We got to do a fun one. We have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, well, on the subject of time, I think ours is up. But thanks so much, Dr. McDonald, for talking with me today. Uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, so I'm mostly found on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Mack, D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C. Um, you can also find my website, AaronPMcDonald.com. That's where you'll find all my convention appearances and links to other um, articles and podcasts that I've done. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing from you. Awesome. I'll leave a link in the show notes where people can find Dr. Aaron on YouTube as well. You've got a lot of great videos uh, that are about the kind of things that we talked about today. Yeah. Thanks so much. This was a blast. Thanks again. Thanks so much to Dr. McDonald for being on the show. We barely scratched the surface of the real world science behind the tech of Trek. So I've got to get her back on soon. She is on Twitter at at Dr. Aaron Mack, D.R. Aaron Mack altogether. Also look for her on YouTube at Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe. You can check out her website and blog and her upcoming appearances at AaronPMcDonald.com. If your particular whistle is wetted for a deeper exploration of science and Trek, I've got a few suggestions for further reading. Why not try The Physics of Star Trek by Lawrence Krauss, a seminal text on the topic, or Physics of the Impossible by Michiko Kaku, which looks at many of the science fiction tropes seen in sci-fi entertainment. Uh, they turned that one into an ITV show. Or you could even try Treknology, the science of Star Trek from tricorders to warp drive by Ethan Siegel, where Siegel goes into the guts and inner workings of some of the scientific equipment on the show. All of these books are available on Amazon.com, and you can buy them by clicking the links in our show notes or by going to EnterprisingIndividuals.com and clicking through our Amazon banner. When you click through our banner on Enterprising Individuals to get to Amazon, a percentage of your transaction comes back to us at no extra cost to you and helps keep the warp core lit here. And that counts for anything. It's not just Star Trek stuff. In fact, you can bookmark the banner, and when you click through to Amazon that way, whatever you buy, the same deal applies. It's a great way to help support the show. Anytime you shop on Amazon, click through your enterprisingindividuals.com bookmark or saved link and shop away. And maybe you're saying, I don't have time for books. Literally, my grandfather is coming from the past to kill me. To which I would say, that's a problem, but all is not lost. Have you seen the movie Time Rider? No. Well, it's available on Amazon.com. Link in the show notes. It stars Fred Ward. It was written by Mike Nesmith of The Monkees, and it offers a unique solution to your grandfather paradox paradox. But I would also say, if you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals and you want to support the show, why not head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly amount, and you can get access to exclusive subscriber content. If you join our cadet tier, you get access to our live shows. We're already lining up another live show for Convergence 2019. Stay tuned for more info on that. You also get my DS9 rewatch recaps. We just started season two of those, and we're off and running on Bioneural Gel Yaks, my series of Star Trek Voyager recaps, all of which are yours for being a cadet for just $12 a year. If you join at the Ensign or $5 level, you also get extended interviews from show guests containing off-topic discussions and outtakes, and you also get access to Stellar Commentaries, our feature where we riff on classic episodes of the original series. Plus, you get sneak peeks at what's coming up on the show, show merch, and we'll thank you live on air for your contribution. So get involved, join the crew of the USS Enterprising Individuals. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Anyone can join our crew, grandparent or grandchild or both. All are welcome at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. And as always, the best way to support the show is to tell a friend. Anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. 
Our top comment on social media this week comes in a roundabout way from the account of Existence is Futile, a TNG podcast at EIF Pod on Twitter. I've got an upcoming episode with Heal Mary and Gooey Fame of Existence that will be out one of these days sometime soon. But we've been tweeting a little in the meantime about Trek. EIP is just pulling out of the first season of TNG. And as we all know, if you can make it through TNG season one, you've still got to get through season two. But once the credits roll on Shades of Grey, you've got the Nanites episode. But stick with it. It gets so good. Eventually. But the folks at EIP ain't afraid of that, saying, quote, what's great about Code of Honor is it's like a vaccination against bad episodes, end quote. I wonder if that kind of prophylactic treatment requires re-administration as you go through the rest of the canon of Trek. Like, does Move Along Home make you ready for looking for Parmok in all the wrong places? Does the cloud immunize you against Threshold? More research is required just by somebody else. Thanks to the folks at Existence is Futile. They just reviewed Symbiosis, and I'm sure that vaccination is working overtime there. So go check out their hilarious commentary on it. For winning top comment this week, you guys will receive an unlimited supply of pre-ripped Hulkamania t-shirts. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we would be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. We've watched them explore strange new worlds, face down the unknown, travel through time, fight the Borg, save the galaxy, pretend to be Sherlock Holmes, take mud baths, play poker, ride horses, drink tea. We've watched them live and watched some of them die. But if Captain Picard can't unravel the mystery of why he's jumping through time, their adventures and our way of life will cease to exist. New York Times bestselling author David R. George returns to the show next week to talk about the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that wrapped up the franchise, but let us know, without a doubt, that the mission would continue. It's all good things. Next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban, signing off and saying live long and prosper. Yeah.